Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. Every week, we have on cool people from the crypto world to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. Before we hop into the show, I want to give a quick thank you to the first sponsor of On the Other Side, Rabbit Hole. Rabbit Hole is allowing users to earn crypto while they explore the weird world of Web3, guiding new users down the crypto rabbit hole in a curated way to make sure that people coming into the space are not only using positive sum protocols, but are also starting to build their on-chain resume as they do it. So the longer term vision for Rabbit Hole is building essentially the open credentialing system for Web3. To build that credentialing system, it's important that they're decentralized. And so the Pathfinder program is paving the way for decentralizing Rabbit Hole and creating an open system built by the community, not by a single team. If you're interested in learning more about Rabbit Hole, check out Rabbit Hole at rabbithole.gg. You can also check them out on Twitter, rabbithole underscore gg. And if you're interested in learning more about the Pathfinder program, which is the first step to the Rabbit Hole DAO, you can check it out at rabbithole.gg slash pathfinder. All right, let's hop into the show. I am here with Jasmine Sun from Reboot. Jasmine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I cannot wait to chat about Reboot and some of the philosophy behind it, how it plays into Web3, all of that. Before we dive into that, do you want to give a little bit of background on you and what you're working on? Yeah, totally. So my name is Jasmine. I run Reboot, which is a publication and community reclaiming techno-optimism for a better collective future. Um, We're mostly a community of young technologists doing a lot of reading and writing about technology and society. I also work on community products at Substack by Day, and I do some writing projects on the side. I love this idea of techno-optimism and how it intersects with Web3. For people who aren't familiar with the term, do you want to give a broad definition of what techno-optimism is? Yeah, and I think it's interesting because the reason that Reboot's like mission statement is about reclaiming techno-optimism is I don't actually resonate with the way that I think a lot of folks have historically maybe defined techno-optimism or talked about it. I remember reading some of the progress studies work, for example, that Patrick Collison and Tyler Cowen put out. And I think sometimes technologists can have the assumption that just because the tech gets better, just because you have technological progress, um, then social and political progress will follow. And that form of techno-optimism seems much more about like technology is definitely going to make the world better in all instances. So we just we should probably just have as much of it as possible. The version of techno-optimism that I am most interested in is almost really human optimism. It's more about human agency. To me, technology is much more about tools that humans use to create the world that they want. And I'm excited about our ability as both individuals and as communities and collectives to build tools and to build systems and to build new things to get much closer to the world we want. And that's maybe a bit fluffier and it requires the human part as much as the new technology part. Um, But that's the version of techno-optimism that I'm most excited about. I think that's really interesting. And you had this amazing piece about techno-optimism and what it's looked like in terms of utopian ideals. It felt like taking this approach that acknowledges that the systems that we have as humans are in some cases pretty fucked up. And technology will sometimes be used 
to continue moving forward things that are fucked up. And what I thought was really interesting was this idea of still choosing a utopia to work toward, but choosing one that sort of acknowledges these challenges that do exist. Do you think that's a fair characterization first? And then also, can you expand more on that thought of sort of like the role of utopia in trying to build technology that does help people and what it means to envision a utopia? Yeah, I spent a while earlier this year just getting really into exploring utopias, I think. And this is also part of the motivation for Reboot. I I guess I identify somewhat with a political left, and I've always been really interested in questions of social justice. And I think that some parts of the like left-wing political ecosystem can get really wrapped up in cynicism about the big bad structures that exist, which are certainly real. And at the same time, there are other folks on the left, particularly um, I, I read from a lot of activists, organizers, theorists who are really actually motivated um, by utopias and by trying to build them. I think especially there, I drew a lot of my own thinking and inspiration from a lot of abolitionist work, um, folks who believe in prison abolition, which is actually prison abolition, you might just be like, okay, they just want to tear down and burn down all of the jails and the prisons. But I think most folks who are interested in that are actually much more interested in the question of how do we build a society where prisons are not necessary? So not just like if we take our current society and burn all the prisons down, everything's going to be fine. Like things are probably not going to be fine. But rather, if we had a better social safety net, if we had more resilient communities, if we were more forgiving as a culture and like use principles of restorative justice in our schools and in our neighborhoods, then we just wouldn't need as many jails and prisons in the first place. And so to me, that's a sort of utopian thinking where it's the short term is, okay, should we just put people in jail? The medium term is, okay, maybe we should have like mental health rehab instead of jail. And then the long-term utopian thing is we could all just be much more empathetic. We could all be more supportive as a society such that we don't need to do things like put people in jail all the time. And now it sounds like I'm like talking about a bunch of things that are not seem maybe unrelated to technology. But I think first of all, like things like jails are like technologies too. They're like tools that humans use to solve human problems. And we've like built these new systems and structures. And I think utopia is just about thinking systemically. It's about thinking about world building much more than it is very like specific right now interventions. And even if it's not something that we can implement, like as a whole, there are usually piecemeal ways to get there. And it helps a lot to have the end vision. Like even when a lot of tech people are really into sci-fi and I remember like my favorite book as a kid was Ender's Game. And I read Ender's Game like probably 15 times by now. And one of the most interesting things to me about Ender's Game was Orson Scott Card, even before the mainstream internet was talking about these like web forums and the way that these kids could like Ender's siblings could go pseudonymous. And they were literally altering the course of geopolitics by writing on these web forums, which today sounds like normal and not that interesting, but it was written in like the 70s or something, correct me if I'm wrong. And what Orson Scott Card is really imagining there is not just um, a web forum, but like a pseudonymous web forum as a vision of a world where your identity, your physical real life identity matters less, where people can connect across borders to promote geopolitical cooperation in the context of Ender's Game and communicate at a much wider scale. And so that's, I guess, what I mean when I say utopia is like really thinking about the entire system, the new things that we can do with each other. And then you can reverse engineer what are the tools that we need to get there. Yeah, I love that. And 
You said something that I think is interesting, which was that this idea of shaping geopolitical movements online sounds less interesting today because we take it for granted between Twitter and all of the different platforms that we can use. And that sort of brought up something in my mind that I've been thinking about, which is systems that work really well are boring. Like they should be boring because you don't have this level of human suffering. And so it feels like there's always going to be suffering where humans, we can work to mitigate it systemically, but it feels like that's always going to happen. And so I wonder if you imagine innovation as almost just this constant reimagining of utopias. Like once we build what we believe is a utopia, there's probably going to be some other problem that emerges, right? I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, totally. I think you're right in that like the total erosion of human suffering or eradication of human suffering is probably unrealistic. I think that's where ideas around value pluralism, around like agonism, I guess a lot of folks talk about voice versus exit, but the ability to replace old systems with new ones. I, yeah, I guess I I believe in the form of value pluralism where values will always trade off. You're always going to have, let's say, liberty versus security in, in the context of surveillance. And in the end, you can't just make everybody absolutely happy. People are going to want to choose a community that reflects their values best. And some people are willing to trade off a little bit of their liberty for increased security. Some people will make the opposite trade off. And I think that these things are always going to be in conflict. And it's more about creating spaces to negotiate them because people do change their minds to talk about this stuff and maybe as external conditions change or just as public opinion changes to always allow the the existing systems to be modified to reflect the values that most people currently hold. And then simultaneously to be able to have multiple communities or multiple states or whatever with different sets of laws and priorities so that if the one you're currently in just doesn't reflect your values at all, you can go to the other one. Like, I guess like it's Less that, I don't remember the exact quote, I think it was something from like Popper that was talking about how at a certain point, the leaders or the people in authority are always going to have power to set policy, to set priorities. It's more like, is that system and is that the person currently in power easily replaceable if there is democratic will to replace them? Like, you're never going to make everybody happy, but what's bad is if you end up with a system where everybody's unhappy and has no ability to replace that. I love that. And I've been thinking a lot about this in the context of DAOs, where whether it be Ethereum, if you consider the network of Ethereum a DAO or a DAO building product, it feels like so much of decentralization is actually about giving people the option to choose if they want to participate or choose how they want to participate. Because to your point, like you're always going to have some sort of delegated decision-making power often in perfect peer-to-peer networks, maybe not, but in a lot of networks you will just because that's how humans are. But this ability to opt in and opt out of different systems feels like one of the core foundations of, I think, Web3 in general. Um, So I love that framing of how we think about a lot of these things. I have never heard of value plurality. Can you talk more about that? Because that feels like an element of this sort of greater picture. Yeah, so I totally agree. I I got into Web3 fairly recently in probably half a year ago, maybe was when I like really started meaningfully engaging with the ecosystem. And 
I had totally had the preconception as a lot of folks do those hyper financialized that it was like scammy, etc, etc. But the thing that really attracted me was like, oh, like, there's certainly like, anarcho capitalists who want to create this like libertarian paradise, and they exist. But the whole point is that you can choose the kind of governance ecosystem that you want to participate in. And you can fork a protocol and create one that you feel is more reflective of your values. And so that's really the thing that brought me to be interested in Web3 in the first place. Um, So value pluralism is a concept from Isaiah Berlin, who is a political philosopher. And he, his whole thing was basically that values, whether liberty, security, agency, what, like all of these sorts of things, you can't actually logically resolve one as like being the best one. Like everyone individually or even everybody within their community might be able to rank the values that they care about, but you can't like logically determine objectively which value is like underlies all the other values or something like that. And that means that people are just always going to disagree and no amount of deliberation or like conducting experiments or something is going to come up with a consensus answer. And because these conflicts are intrinsic or immovable, you maybe should lean into that a little bit. At least that's, I don't know if he says this, but this is my takeaway, is we should lean into the fact that different values compete. And we should lean into the fact that these are irresolvable in many ways. And that doesn't mean people can't cooperate or reach interim agreements with each other. Nobody's going to agree with 100% of what their city government or what their company um, determines at all times. But I think it's much more important to recognize those conflicts than to pretend that they don't exist or to shut down disagreement or to act like the things that you prioritize are the objectively correct ones rather than a preference or a trade-off that you are willingly making. Another political theorist who I think about a lot here is Chantal Mouffe, who coined um, the term democratic agonism. And a lot of what Mouffe talks about, she draws on the importance of pluralism. And she says that a lot of times you get radical um, extremist political movements when people aren't given space to deliberate and to express their values and their conflict. So if you get a two-party system, say in the United States, where the leaders of neither party really reflects um, the will of many people, like everyone sort of rushes towards the center, towards being generically acceptable, but then you have all of these people on the fringes, both the left and the right, who are told that their positions aren't acceptable at all. They see almost no representation in like electoral politics. And because they're told not like, oh, we're just making a trade-off, but rather your positions are illegitimate or we're not even going to allow you into the arenas of say Congress to express those values. Like people saying Bernie Sanders shouldn't even be in Congress. He's like not a real Democrat, blah, 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 blah. Um, that's when people really grow towards extremist tendencies and grow towards, actually, we should just burn down the system. This is no longer legitimate. And so I I guess like the way that I see this is like any community, any company, any state, any DAO, whatever, has to create space for negotiating these values conflicts and also for acknowledging them. I, I think like a good governance system or like a good community leader or something like that certainly has to make decisions. But I think people should be open about the value trade-offs that they're making. They should be open and saying, okay, like we are going to, in our community, aim towards, say, like equality of outcome. And we acknowledge that a redistributive system that focuses on equality of outcome might mean that we don't grow our like 
best people as quickly or like where some people might be less motivated to contribute a ton and they might go to other uh, companies where they can be rewarded more proportional to their contribution. But because in our community, we want to have a quality of outcome, we're willingly going to make that trade off. That's a value trade off we're making. And so I think like transparency about like value trade offs, like not trying to ignore the fact that people have different things they prioritize and then giving people options to both express voice as well as to exit and create their own thing is also really important. I think that's so interesting in the context of this idea that Web3 allows for people opting in and out. And so if you don't like a value trade-off that's consistently being made, not only can you overtly recognize that, but you can also leave. It feels like part of this concept about extremism and not being able to have space for conversations is also how we create space for conversations across different communities more broadly. So if I'm opting out of a DAO or a system that's making certain value trade-offs that I don't like and I go somewhere else, how do you see communication between those two communities, like the one that I left and the one that I'm joining? Do you think that's important, A? And then B, I'm curious how you see that in this like more broad landscape of lots of different communities that will have different sets of values that they prioritize. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that like that communication is important. And in fact, I think in most functioning um, societies, you usually want voice over exit. I think that sometimes folks in Web3 privilege exit a bit too much. Like, oh, you can always leave. You can always fork it. You can always do your own thing. I think people maybe undervalue a little bit the like longer term relationships that are built or the effort that it takes to make a thing better as opposed to always leaving for the next shiny object because certain problems are just human. If you are just frustrated by like collaboration, you'll probably be frustrated by collaboration in every human context you go to. So I first of all think that in most cases, a good system for expressing voice and for allowing the current leadership or the current governance structure to adapt in response to the community is the most important thing. Of course, some people will still leave and creating that opportunity is important. And then at that point, I do think you're right that communication between communities that are testing out different things is really important. Like I think within Web3, one of the reasons that I'm interested is because every DAO feels like its own experiment in social and political coordination. And realistically, the way that most startups fail, most DAOs will fail, some will succeed. But I'm just like really excited from almost like a researcher's perspective to, I guess, just watch what works and what doesn't and look at a lot of the DAOs that are emerging as like a big set of case studies. And I'm hoping, I guess, that DAO leaders will be really open about the things that they are trying and what's working and what's not. Like the whole learning in public thing feels much more important um, because I don't think anyone's figured out the recipe yet. And because um, that way people can not, not only like contributors and members can make more informed decisions about joining a DAO that matches like their values and the things they care about, but also DAOs can learn from each other and learn much better and faster. Like, I think like I've really enjoyed reading other internet's recent reports, like the Uniswap one on off-chain governance, because it feels like a sort of case study and making that knowledge open and making that knowledge something others can learn from feels really important. I love this concept around DAOs where they're so open, you know, traditionally in companies or even governments to see that something is failing, 
usually requires that you look at some indicator that's not immediate. The feedback loops feel way longer because, you know, you don't want to share with your competitors what's working and what isn't working. But because of the open nature of Web3, we pretty much share everything generally. And I love that because I think to your point, it's really creating these like composable learnings that traditionally with research and other types of things um, would either take a long time or it's just data that's not accessible. I know you've thought a lot about how technology and political systems and humans intersect with each other. When you think about this transparency, are there examples or philosophies that come to mind that sort of predict what the impact of this might be on a systemic level? If not, that's fine. But I'm curious because it does feel quite different from most of the models and systems that we have currently. That's a really good question. And I'm not sure (laughs) that I have an example, but I think you're right. That's just like companies in particular are certainly not going to be sharing this openly. And I think it happens at limited scale because people like leaders will convene with each other and talk about what's working and what isn't. But the scale at which DAOs do it is probably relatively unprecedented. Yeah. And it actually reminds me in some ways of this idea of building in the way that you're talking about with techno-optimism, where you have this ability to acknowledge what isn't working, which I think is really interesting. I think that's one of the most important aspects of DAOs, where you're able to openly build in a way that, to your point about value trade-offs and things like that, we're honest with ourselves about how things are going instead of just being blindly trying to like say, hey, everything's going great. Um, with Reboot, I know that you've helped a community navigate challenging conversations. I'm curious what has worked really well when it comes to talking about how systems and technology are both good and bad and what has not worked. Like when you try to navigate those types of conversations where there are really a lot of different tensions and opportunities for people to, to feel really strongly about things. I'm curious how you've managed those conversations and managed a community who's having those conversations. Yeah, totally. I've thought about this a lot. One of the things I'm most interested in generally is just how do you have hard conversations that are also honest conversations. And like, I think, for example, social media theorists talk a lot about context collapse, like the internet is too public now, your coworkers and your parents can see all of your shit posts, you might get canceled in 20 years because you like use the wrong word. And I think the importance of semi-private or private communities, whether it's something like Reboot, whether it's a DAO Discord, whether it's just a group chat, doing the opposite and like creating that openness requires a really high level of community and interpersonal trust. And with Reboot, shockingly, I think there's 300 people in our Discord and I have read almost every conversation in there and I have never seen people like get mad at each other, like ever. And I've been to like a lot of synchronous calls too. And we're constantly talking about really controversial things and politics. And um, yeah, I, I just have never seen people actually express any ill will towards each other, even while disagreeing. And this feels really great and it feels really magical. And I think there's a few different elements that might go into that. I think one is seeding the community with a 
really great early group of people to establish the norms. Like we bring people on pretty slowly. We started out with about 50 people who were um, part of our fellowship that we ran, who were past contributors to the newsletter, who are really active readers or came to a lot of events. So there are people familiar with the ecosystem. Some people knew each other already. And the shared goals are really about, I guess, like learning. And like every discussion we start with starts with like, assume good faith of everybody here. Like we might disagree with each other, but where the other person is probably not a bad person because we all have the shared goals of learning and understanding how technology plays into a better future. So I think that shared purpose, shared norms was really important. I think starting with a small group and expanding it like pretty slowly is pretty important. Initially at the beginning, we would do one-on-one onboardings for almost every member where you would have to fill out a form if you wanted to join the Discord. And then somebody who is already in the community would reach out for a 15 minute call. And I think like having that human connection at the really beginning other, and also having a guide partner um, I guess, made it feel less like alien. And also I bet bad actors were just discouraged by having to get on a call because that's hard. And then of course that didn't really scale. And now we do like cohort onboardings where we'll bring in 50 people at once, but we bring in those 50 people at once through also more high touch process. Like we'll give a little talk about what are our values and what do we care about and what is the mission. We'll have community members share about different ways they've contributed. I think just introducing both friction as well as like telling people like what are the things we care about what are our values and make it feel really human like really early on creates a space where the bad actors are unlikely to join people who do join understand this shared goal of learning together and embracing debate and argument only in service of something generative or in service of learning more or doing better and you just have all of these like human relationships that you probably don't want to break which makes people nice um Like one of my goals, which I don't think we've quite achieved yet, is I spent a while where I would ask lots of my friends, when was the last time you changed your mind about something really meaningful? And in what context did that happen? And pretty much unfailingly, everybody would say, like in a one-on-one conversation or a really small group conversation with people they were really close with, because that's the only opportunity where they were going to be really honest about what they believed. And also, more importantly, that honesty was because you don't think you're going to lose the entire relationship with that person just because you like said something they disagree with. And I think that's always a fear that everybody has in the back of their mind. And what I hope with Reboot is like, I want to create a community where these shared norms of assume good faith or express disagreement, like be honest, but do it civilly and do it politely, or we're all here because we believe in this like shared vision of the future. I want this to almost shortcut or like be a proxy for the kind of trust that you have on that like really close friends level, um, such that if any two people in Reboot were to have a conversation together, even if they didn't know each other beforehand, simply by virtue of having been immersed in this community and these values and these norms, they might be able to get a lot faster to that point of mutual honesty and mutual openness. I don't think you're ever going to get 100% of the way there via a community, but I think like communities as proxies for trust is like something that I am really interested in. Um, So a lot of that stuff has gone well. I would say the things that have gone less well have a lot less to do with conversations and things because I think we've been fortunate to have just like a really good group of like kind people. Um, The harder things have been probably around, and I think a lot of DAOs struggle with this stuff, but like contributor churn, maintenance, and the fact that everyone loves doing creative work and it's much harder to do maintenance work and administrative work and logistical work, probably like burnout or getting close to burnout from people who are doing an undue amount of that maintenance work. Those sorts of like organizational 
things and contribution things, I think are much more challenging. And I've actually like talked to friends who are involved in DAOs or done a lot of reading from folks like you and folks like others who have been writing about how to navigate these challenges as I try to figure it out since definitely still figuring that out. I feel like we're all very much trying to figure this out at the same time. But I love this idea of being part of a community as a proxy or at least a foundation for building trust. I think that's so interesting. So a lot of my perspective comes from DAOs and all of the different paradigms that we have in Web3, where I would love to be building spaces for these conversations. But the reality is that a lot of them today are happening on governance forums in async ways. I'm curious how you think about this idea of even if it's not in person, face-to-face human interaction versus like async conversations. Are a lot of these onboarding processes within Reboot video calls? Like I'm curious how you think about the async side of things and how that impacts community building. Yeah, a lot of our stuff is video calls, like those one-on-one onboardings, or even now that we do cohort-based, they're like calendar invites, video calls, and we won't make you turn your camera on or anything, but the default is to do it synchronously on a call. And a lot of our like book clubs and discussions are on calls. We've done IRL things and interviewing community members, especially community members who had never participated in any of our formal programs. So like some people joined the community because they wrote a guest essay for the newsletter. They did our like undergrad fellowship or something. But there are also people who got involved um, more like they found us on Twitter or something and joined that way. And I wanted to ask these people because at first we like a lot of people wouldn't stick with it if they had not gone through a formal program, like they join and then like they wouldn't stick around. And it's in what cases do people stick around? And most people who stuck around said that they came to synchronous things as soon as possible. And that that was their number one recommendation for anybody looking to get involved in Reboot was go to either an IRL meetup or a like synchronous like book club video call thing. as soon as possible. And with things like book clubs in particular, those are weekly events. And that really helps you build relationships with others. Like even when you run like a six week book club, the first one or two conversations are usually like not that good because a lot of people don't know each other yet and they're a bit scared, but it ends up growing really comfortable. And I think when I think about async versus synchronous versus IRL, it's sort of like the richer the medium, the less time you need to establish that human connection. And the like less rich the medium, like Discord chat or a governance forum, you need just like more repeated interactions to get to the same level of trust. So it's not possible. And I recognize there are like accessibility issues. There's things with like time zones and whatever that can make synchronous chat really hard. But I think you just need more repeated interactions in that case if you can't prioritize synchronous stuff. Like our biggest project that we've run to date was we put together a print magazine and we did a retro recently with the core magazine team about how that process went. It was really hard. They're like, we've never made a magazine before. Nobody on the team had ever made a magazine before. And there's so much to learn in terms of rallying contributors, like putting, doing all of the design stuff in like Figma and like printing and fulfillment and whatever. And the team was like, and we, the, those of us who were involved had first met or first started working on this during an in-person month-long retreat. And what they said was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure we would never have accomplished this if we didn't spend all of that in-person time at the beginning, because the fact that we we're like actually friends is pretty much what got us through this otherwise very laborious process. And something that I worry about with Web3 sometimes is I think a lot of times these 
things that are really upheld on Web3 is super important, like trustlessness or the ability to like verify like fungibility. Everything is like on either scan. So you can just look up anyone's transactions and it's super transparent. You take all these like really human things that are like frictionful and time consuming and replace them with technical counterparts that are much faster and much more scalable. But also when you do that, you like don't build, I guess, like the human connections because it was like too easy and too fast. And that feels like a little bit less robust. I know a lot of like DAOs and stuff, it's like you do both. You have both a human version of trust and you have like the blockchain version of trust. And that's obviously probably ideal. But yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for friction. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. And I think you bring up a really interesting point around building human connection in a way that feels resilient. Because I think this idea that the richer the medium, the easier it is to build trust and connection is really interesting and totally true. And I also wonder if the richer the medium, the harder it is to break that. Maybe that's just Mm -hmm. a function of the direct connection. But I don't know. I think there's probably something interesting there as well. Yeah, I think that's true. I I mean, I guess when you talk about breaking trust, do you mean in the connection of breaking trust being desirable or undesirable? Or I I don't know. I haven't considered this. I'd love to hear more. Well, I suppose breaking trust can be desirable. I've been thinking about this. This is like a small tangent. So traditionally, I would think of breaking trust as bad. But actually, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of death basically within the system and not death of people, but death of ideas, death of relationships in that it is potentially just an evolution of something. And so I suppose breaking trust can actually be both good and bad when you look at an entire system where sometimes things grow and flourish and sometimes things fade away and die. And perhaps that's actually okay in the context of a system that is ideally evolutionary. And so maybe you actually need both. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think like one of the things that a lot of DAOs do at least is like having seasons for contribution. Like I think it's really important with anything like this that you don't expect like somebody's contributing, they're going to have time forever, especially because most people are involved in multiple things at the same time. And yeah, opportunities to end one's relationship or engagement with a particular community or with somebody else without creating antagonism between those people feels really important. And for us, it's much less formal seasons and more just like when I work with folks on Reboot, I'll, I'll check in every three to four months to be like, do you still want to do this? Like, it's totally fine if you don't, because like you sort of recognize that people are going to move between contributions zones or whatever or levels of commitment and that feels okay but yeah I also simultaneously agree with um the idea that when you have richer mediums it's harder to break trust like Zainab Tufeki in her book Twitter and Tergas like she she's a sociologist and a technologist and she's done a lot of study of social movements now she mostly writes about the pandemic and things like that but she was studying a lot of the Arab Spring and the role of social media and Twitter and stuff in that for a long time. And what she talked a lot about was technologies like Twitter, scaling technologies, really. Like Twitter is also a social coordination technology in the same way that the blockchain is, um, would make it really easy for people to get together really quickly. Like Constitution DAO can raise like tens of millions of dollars really quickly. And that is great. And that's something that should be valued for movements as a core part of movement building. But the thing that's missing is what she calls network internalities, which I have pulled up a definition. They're the benefits and collective capabilities attained during the process of forming durable networks, which occur regardless of what the task is or how trivial it may seem, 
as long as it poses challenges that must be overcome collectively and require decision-making, building of trust, and delegation. And so what like she means is like, when you have to do like things that are boring administrative tasks, like pick a date for the next event, or just spend a bunch of time in a meeting room together, like stapling stuff, or like deliberating over how much money you spend on this versus that. All of these like administrative processes strengthen the network and make it more robust. And those are the sorts of things where I guess I think it's important to not trade off just because you have technologies for making things more efficient. I think that's so interesting in the context of something like Constitution DAO or others where we're coming together really quickly. And sometimes that feels like the trade-off is thinking really intentionally about how we want to engage as a collective. What I think is really interesting about your thoughts on techno-optimism and Reboot's approach is that part of the tension feels like thinking about innovation versus intentional thinking, whether it be regulatory aspects of things or thinking about the consequences of technology, it feels like that trade-off and that tension is harder to hold space for when we do things collectively really quickly. I'm curious how you think about that, especially with Web3, where you can organize so quickly. Yeah, I... I think it's really hard. And I think that's why it was just as hard during the Arab Spring and with Twitter-based social movements as it is with Web3 and with a lot of the collective organizing, fundraising, et cetera, that's happening now. I, I think a lot of it just comes down to making sure that you have a mix of motivations or a mix of incentives in the group. It's some people who ape into a project like Constitution DAO are going to be motivated by the money or the financial upside. Some are going to be motivated by the memes. Some are going to be motivated because of purpose, others because of friendship. And it's really like when you think of all of these motivations and incentives, like layering on top of each other, a community or a network or an effort is going to be way more resilient when you have multiple of these at the same time. Because even if you break one, let's say that there's a big internal fight in the community and it makes a bunch of people like interpersonally very angry at each other. If that's the case, it might actually be good to have others who are motivated by financial upside because those people are going to keep on working, even if the interpersonal trust is ruined. On the other side, let's say the like coin crashes or something and it's not worth very much anymore, but there's still all this other interesting work and interesting purpose. Maybe that's when you want people who are motivated by the broader mission. And I think any effective organization or movement or community just needs like a lot of layered incentives. And that's just what's always going to be the most robust. Like one of the sociology studies, I studied sociology in school is like that I think about a lot is... Um, for Freedom Summer, which was like during the civil rights movement, when a bunch of young people like got on these buses and rode around to protest like the lack of civil rights, one of the best predictors for whether people would participate in Freedom Summer, like whether they would ditch their normal stuff to get on a bus and ride around was whether their friends or like their church groups and stuff had other people who were doing it. And it doesn't mean that the people who didn't go on these buses didn't care about civil rights. Probably everybody cared about civil rights. But the thing that really makes it is having those layered motivations. That is so interesting. I love that framing because it really feels like the communities that I look at today that I think, okay, I could see this doing well in a bear market 
are the communities that are not just thinking about financial incentives and supporting themselves and their families, but they really do feel the sense of connection and belonging and purpose within community. So I love the framing of multiple different motivations and then having all of that exist in some shared context. And maybe a lot of those things are shared context and people connect through them, but I absolutely love that framing. And I love that you're able to pull in examples from history and like sociology, because I think, yes, we're creating new mechanisms in some cases, but in a lot of cases, we're just taking from very different parts of the world that maybe haven't been in the digital landscape yet, which is kind of interesting. So I love that you're able to pull in examples. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that is most interesting and exciting to me about Web3 is like the examples feel relevant, I guess. Actually, like I I wonder a lot about whether this is almost part of the technology itself. Like when you had the Web2 platforms, engineers and designers and whatever could act much more as like high modernist architects and they would basically control their users, control how you interact, how you establish your identity. But because Web3 starts from the idea that you're not built, you're building like incentive systems, you're building protocols, stuff like value setting or or value setting or incentive design just become way more salient. And I almost feel like the default assumption in Web3 is that like you can't impose your system on people because like humans are humans and they're not manipulable data points. And we embrace the fact that people are different and motivated by all sorts of things. And like that default assumption is actually one of the things I appreciate most because it means that... Um, First of all, I think it's more accurate to how people actually are. And then second, I think that results in a lot more appreciation for the work of like economists or community builders or like philosophers because understanding how people operate is much more, not much more, but like as important as understanding like how does this protocol work technically? Yes, I love that. And I think that's really interesting in the context of how we actually design these systems, which is probably like a whole other conversation. (laughs) I know we're running up on the end of time, but I have a segment at the end of the show that is, what is your favorite thing in your wallet? So it could be an ERC-20, an NFT, anything, but what is your favorite thing in your wallet? Yeah, so I have not very many things in my wallet because I'm pretty new to the ecosystem. But one thing that I'm very excited about is um, the first NFTs that I minted, I guess other than my ENS, were uh, the witches from Crypto Coven. If you've seen that, they actually opened their public sale today. And the thing that I loved about the project, they're basically like, I think 9,999 witches. They're uh, generatively created and they have like different skin tones, like hairstyles, jewelry, and they're all really beautiful. First, I remember I just saw it and I was like, I actually really like the art. I think as most folks know, a lot of art in NFT world is just not very nice to look at. And I was like, wow, I actually really find these things beautiful. Um, They're also really diverse and they diverse along a lot of axes, but also like the community is really intentional which I really appreciate. And they're really friendly to folks who are new to NFTs and new to crypto. Like they published um, a bunch of 101 guides on like, how do you even mint an NFT? Or the way that they set their prices or had a very long community sale before the public sale really privileged um, folks who were engaged for reasons beyond like financial speculation. And I think a lot of people used participation in the project as a way to onboard or to, I guess, begin dabbling in the crypto ecosystem. Um, So I just, yeah, I just really appreciated that it was a really accessible, really beautiful and just like really thoughtful project. It's also, I think, a fully women run project, which is cool and not common in crypto. 
I just minted my crypto coven when it opened a little bit ago, or I yeah. minted a few. Yeah. They're great. Yeah, um, I was so excited. Yes. And they do. I do love the way that they look. I saw someone who had done the minting prior because they were in the community in a Twitter space. And I was like, damn, those are really just, yeah, beautifully done NFTs. So I absolutely love Crypto Coven. I think it's a really awesome project. And I, I think they've definitely taken a lot of learnings from the inaccessibility of a lot of other NFT drops. So completely agree on that. Jasmine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you and learn more about Reboot and all the things that you're thinking about? Yeah, I can be found on Twitter at jasminewsun. And then you can find Reboot and subscribe to our newsletter at joinreboot.org. Thank you so Beautiful. much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yes, thank you. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.